This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction. The information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Jay Baruch, who is a professor of emergency medicine at Alpert Medical School of Brown University, where he serves as the director of the Medical Humanities and Bioethics Scholarly Concentration. He's a practicing emergency physician, writer, medical educator, and accidental academic whose interdisciplinary work evolved in response to medicine's unaddressed messiness, which requires creativity as a clinical skill, and physicians who think like creative writers and artists. He's the author of two award-winning short fiction collections, uh, What's Left Out and 14 Stories, Doctors, Patients, and Other Strangers. Most recently is authored Tornado of Life, a Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER, which is what we'll be discussing today. Anyway, Jay, welcome so much. Hey, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's wonderful to have you. And uh, I can say that I'm excited to, to dig in to uh, your book today because, you know, I read it, obviously, in preparation for uh, for this for this discussion, and I absolutely loved it, and I particularly enjoyed the writing style. But before we get into that, I'm always curious whenever I have any sort of scientist or doctor or um, just interesting individual on in general, how it is that they became interested in what it is that they're doing. So in your case, science and medicine, where does that all come from for you? Uh, for, for me, um, <laughs> I, I I actually, um, I am foremost a English humanities nerd who okay. managed to incorporate the necessary sciences to do the work that I do. Uh, so like I, I've always been uh, geared towards writing and the humanities. I went to college to be an English professor, to be a writer, hoping to be. Um, love, love stories had revered, revered writers um, and artists. And, uh, and I became interested in medicine um, from, uh, I had a couple of experiences in, in college that brought me into conversations with patients and me really meaningful conversations and, and being totally enraptured by that and those encounters. And not only by the privilege of being, uh, exposed and being the witness and being on the receiving end of such profound experiences, um, that people were going through, but also, realizing that you know in medicine i actually have a chance to act on those stories you know i can have the knowledge and the experience and the training and i can and and that was really my entrance way into into medicine as really was a, as a science using artist um rather than someone who was primarily geared towards towards the sciences and then went into medicine. So it was sort of, I kind of slipped in, slipped in through the humanities door, so to speak, John. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I've actually, I mean, I've done a number of these and I've actually, I've never heard of anyone who has done quite that journey. I did have someone on recently who was interested in uh, also writing like an English major and then ended up going into mathematics. Right. But, uh, mathematics isn't quite uh, the same as like going going uh, for medicine or where, you know, particularly emergency medicine in your case. But the I can definitely tell from this book that you've written that you've written fiction in the past just because uh, the narratives were absolutely wonderful. So I just I really loved the way that you kind of weaved your experiences into these stories. And 
I think it's something that you allude to in the book, and maybe you overtly state it, is that people do gravitate towards stories, uh, toward, towards these narratives. And I particularly really enjoyed that. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really interesting that that you uh, recognize that. And I, and I appreciate I really appreciate that. Because oftentimes, I find that um, in a lot of in several books, written by physicians, even books that I, you know, these are books that I love and, and revere. Oftentimes, the 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 narrative element the 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 situation being written about is really sort of an occasion to then sort of really to go off into the ideas or to go into the policy or to go into the science and 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 I understand that and that's like really good you know that's really good narrative writing um but my my focus really is on the the people and on the story itself um and and I feel like that that different perspective on it is not necessarily about writing a, a, a better book or a different book. It's just, mm -hmm. about, I think how we, how we bring our own sensibilities to the work that we do. Right. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating, not just in medicine, but in, in even the person you interviewed about mathematics, right. Um, they bring their own perspectives into their work. And, and hopefully if we're, if we're lucky, we get a chance to, either teach or to express that and share it with others and, and, and hopefully it resonates with people. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that the narrative um, really resonates with people. And I know that you were, you had mentioned about other physicians writing books and I know I, I've written one book in the past too. And obviously I, you know, as a, as a scientist myself, I've written a lot of textbooks and I know that, and this uh, goes back to the book that I've written myself. It is informative, but almost a little dry in the sense that you're kind of just stating facts and how these facts loosely connect with the real world. But when you create these narratives, and I've written books in more dense subjects, such as, let's say, medicine for you, or even in philosophy and logic, um, as another example, or critical thinking. And when these narrative styles are implemented and you tell these stories. I don't know, there's just a whole nother level of appeal in my opinion. And I definitely know that I'm trying to do that in my own writing because right. like you, I'm a fan of writing. And yeah. I just think that it's it's so important. It really helps to connect with people who may not necessarily be interested in the subject material to begin with, but what person doesn't love a good story? <laughs> exactly. And I feel that, uh, you know, hopefully in what all all good stories share is uh you know a, a captivating or interesting or provocative protagonist you know someone who is striving who has desires has needs has striving for something and obstacles get in their way right so even if the obstacles in let's just say in medicine you know let's say the obstacles are you know the body has gone has gone awry in some way, whether it's through the disease or injury or um, how we're always interested in how, how we're meeting those obstacles, right? Because even if that's not something that, that we are experiencing um, exactly, there's, we're always fascinated by how, how we deal with trouble, you know, how we respond to trouble, like how we cope with it, how we understand it, and how we try to um, deal with it and, and move on. Uh, and, and those are really deep human questions, regardless of the situation, they oftentimes resonate with, with us in, in profound ways because we can see the connections to our own lives. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, like we, uh, you know, I just said earlier, who doesn't love a good story? Cause it definitely, right. it definitely connects with you. Um, and if you can take complex material and weave it into a, this beautiful story, uh, there is a far better chance, I think, of the, you know, the average person latching onto it, maybe even absorbing some of it. So I just think it's brilliant. And I definitely know that you know, I've seen it a few other times, too, with more complicated or complex material. And I definitely want to try to do some of that more myself in the future. <laughs> 
Yeah, I re- I don't know who said this. I didn't. I it's it's drawing a blank, and it's gonna and it's not a exact quote. It's not nearly as eloquent as as it should be. But something about like what, what a story is, you know, um, is often, you know, it's like facts and events wrapped in emotion. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that element of, you know, what the experience of going through something and how do you convey that in, in a way that is sort of vivid and concrete and expresses the complexity of it. Um, I think that that is really where the, the, the challenge is and where the fun is. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, you started off in English humanities yes. and then you kind of yes. found your way you found your way moving into medicine and at what point did you decide that you wanted to become an emergency doctor or that you wanted to do emergency medicine so there's so many different paths that you can go down in medicine why yeah. emergency medicine I know isn't that amazing and it probably in some ways it's so um and I'm like close to doing this for 30 years you know um and in, in many ways it's so antithetical to my personality in some ways it's so perfectly aligned with my personality uh so i actually went to medical school and i i hope planning on figuring out being a psychiatrist um because you know it was very narratively and story oriented and and there were certain sort of physician writers who i admired so much who were psychiatrists like like robert coles for example um and um and then i went into i, I was and i was a and I was preparing to go into psychiatry and I did an, uh, an elective in emergency medicine. And I don't know, like at, at the time, this is even before the show ER and I got like, I'm old as dirt. This is like right before the show ER came out. <laughs> Not many people knew what emergency medicine was. Um, we didn't have the reality TV shows that, you know, that we now have. And so it was sort of like, there's this mystique around it. And, and I got to tell you, like there was something about, the social justice mission about emergency medicine, which was and is the fact that we care for people that all the times people for populations and communities that they can't get care elsewhere, you know, they come to the emergency department, the fact that we serve as like the safety net in the healthcare system. Um, but also, there was a sense of sort of getting a chance to just meet so many different types of people um, in that work. And you saw everyone who came into the door. And I and I found that so compelling and fascinating. And then for some reason, like being in that space and not knowing what's going to walk through the door was both terrifying and invigorating at the same time. And for some reason, I just, it just felt like home when I started doing my rotations there. And, you know, when you make your list, you make your list of like, what are the things that I like about a particular specialty? And what are the things I, I don't like, or I want to avoid? And, and you write this list and you try to be very, talk about critical thinking, right? You try mm-hmm. to be very <laughs> logical about the whole thing. But then sometimes you just go into a space and you go, oh my God, this feels, this feels like home, like intuition. It feels, this feels like I belong here. And then it, it defies all logic and all explanation. And, and that was ultimately the, the, the reason why I, I went into it. Cause I just found myself really finding that space, um, a meaningful space to, to practice medicine in. Very interesting psychiatry so you started off with psychiatry and then you went in and i still love sit. psychiatry i still yeah. love i still i still love psychiatry um and 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 unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately um like we see tons of psychiatric and patients with mental illness and people yeah. with either diagnosed or undiagnosed or people going through emotional you know struggles um in the emergency department because of the fact that the mental health system in our country is so um needs needs to be bigger needs to be stronger needs to be better than it is yeah no definitely and it is you know you're talking about you're seeing a lot of psychiatric individuals in the er that's uh it's very sad i mean it shouldn't really be that way people having to go to the emergency room having mental health crises right when there should be systems in place that help them and that seems to be a conversation i hear quite frequently and we right. it's been ongoing for years about improving the mental health uh infrastructure in this country yeah so and, hopefully yeah. hopefully it's something people are working I mean, you know people are working on it but uh 
little bit more needs to be done here. Yeah, I think, and the people and my, you know, people who are working in the mental health field are, you know, extraordinary, but, you know, this, we need more. We need more. We need more infrastructure. We need more people doing it. Uh, but especially since the pandemic, you know, we've seen uh, a really increase in the number of people who are experiencing mental health challenges. No, absolutely. I, def I definitely think that the pandemic to a degree and, you know, I'm not sure how you feel about this, but the, you know, we had to do the lockdowns and all of that in the beginning of it. And it seemed as though certain individuals who suffered from uh, particular types of mental health illnesses, it made it worse, um, the, the lockdowns, unfortunately. So we had all of these different ways that we had to deal with the pandemic. And it seemed like every time we tried to fix a certain aspect of the pandemic, whatever, whatever it was, you know, suppressing community spread, et cetera. Um, but then we had yeah. these ancillary types of problems that popped up and that right. we had to deal with on the back end of things. But Right. Yeah, we can we can, we can get into that uh, later. But yeah, it was just it's just unfortunate. I know that definitely mental health was something that suffered uh, or something that a lot of people had to uh, cope with uh, throughout the certain aspects of the pandemic, and right. then it really exacerbated that. Yeah, and but, I know, and the, and loneliness and the isolation and the loneliness yeah. was a big issue as well. No, definitely, definitely. But anyway, okay, so emergency, you find yourself in emergency medicine, you're practicing for a number of years, you've written a few, you, you love writing, written some uh, wonderful fiction novels. Now, why did you feel like you needed to write this particular book, Tornado of Life? So the full title, um, so this, you, have a, you have a secondary title, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER, which I love, by the way. Thank but you. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm just curious as to, yeah, what was the impetus for all of this? Uh, uh, again, like the, I think the, the explanation might, might be uh, dispiriting to many of your listeners, but uh, like I didn't intend to write a book. I mean, I, okay. I was, um, my, uh, sort of my quasi, like I, as you said uh, at at the introduction, like I, I consider myself a reluctant or an accidental academic, and one of the areas that I've, I've always been interested in is in the fact that um, in the role of sort of uh, sort of creativity and, and the constraints and and how sort of art space thinking really informs my own work in in the clinical in clinical spaces and I've written about you know how we need to think differently um and my own writing was in that in that area as well and and I don't just mean my academic writing because like my my I write I mean so when I I work through I think I write in order to think in a way I feel is um, is meaningful and honest and transparent. I mean, it's amazing what happens when you put words on the page and you try to put words to an experience. Like you think you know an experience, you think you're, you're processing an experience. And at least for me, I have to, when I write it's a t and I, and I get the hand moving, I access parts of my brain that, 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 that it just sort of kicks it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, a lot of the book is is really challenges that I was trying to work through on the page. I was trying to understand it for myself. And most of what I end up writing doesn't see the light of day because it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. um, uh, however, when certain situations arise again and again, or similar situations either arise to me or to others, and people say, God, you know, no one talks about this. No one talks about this. No one talks about this. Um, I I then say, huh. And then I start revisiting, you know, some of these pieces. So there's always an underlying drive of necessity in all the in almost everything that I write, especially the pieces in this book. They all they all emerge at a at a particular moments, um, not just experiences, but actually emotions that I was trying to process that ended up somehow coalescing into into a book so that's really interesting what you said there about how you wrote it more or less for yourself that it wasn't intended to be a book and that it helps you to actually kind of like refine these experiences for you to try to figure them out to work through them because i know that i know that for me 
you know, this particularly like when it comes to learning new things, like I have to write it down, like that really mm -hmm. helps me to learn it. And I know that like if I'm trying to work through emotions or figure a situation out, uh, like you said, that writing it down really actually helps to clarify it. Um, there's something about like, cause you have to like think about all these other types of situations and scenarios and it helps you to right. kind of refine the words. And then you think about the sentences after you put them down, you go through and you proofread it and you think about the situation over and over again. I, I do that myself. And I think it, I think it's fascinating that you kind of wrote an entire book based around this concept. <laughs> well, it's also the way I just have always my entire life, even my, um, the, the years ago, like the, my pre my previous two short fiction collections all emerged from just experiences that somehow then got processed into fiction. This mm -hmm. just was just different. It got processed into nonfiction. And, but I, it's really interesting, right? Because if you have gone through my notes and saw my notes, I mean, my like they're sloppy and they're you know meandering, but there's always something there that's interesting. There's almost always something that I did not discover before that I didn't quite work out, or something that leads me to something else. Like it allows you to get very, you know, very granular, and you're building something, and you're both going deeper, and you're building, and you're sort of going to these places that that you wouldn't have gone before. I mean, some people, I don't know, John, that like some people are just brilliant, right? And they they have these brilliant ideas and they put it on, and basically it's like, I'm just going to put it on paper. <laughs> <laughs> I got this brilliant stuff and I'm going to put it on paper. I am not that person, you know, like, and I am, and I, I get a chance to see my mind at work. Like we're talking about critical thinking. I get a chance to see my mind at work through the revising process. You know, so as I revise, it's actually it's it's not just revising the revising the writing, Re revision through writing is actually a revision of my thinking and a sharpening and a tightening, and um, and really you know being crystal clear with what I was what I, what I'm thinking and trying to get that on the page and trying to close that gap as much as possible, trying to discover where I want to go, what I'm exactly what I'm trying to say, what I'm feeling find the language for that and then trying to get whatever's up here onto the page mm -hmm. so that experience is somewhat resembles each other you come close and never is exactly gets that way but but that's what i aspire to do yeah very interesting and i think it's actually kind of great advice for anyone who's watching or listening right now about you know if you're thinking about something Start writing it down and yep. then revising it, write it down again. And I think you'll be shocked or surprised about how much better you understand the situation that you did before after you performed the exercise. And there's also literature to say that um, that when you write about experiences and you also couple that with sort of like the emotional journey that you were going through what you were feeling so coupling like the description with the motion um really you know is there's some beneficial effects to that there's some scientific literature supporting that whether it's helping with depression helping with um you know ideas like burnout or um but there's but there's some literally a growing body of literature on the role of sort of of writing um and the the health effects of of doing that, I just find it helps to get it out, and to get it out and to externalize it and see it on the page. It sort of frees me up, and also it sort of serves as a little bit of a as a uh, as almost like a you're working through experiences, and it's almost like you're it's like you're doing practice, like you you're, you're playing through an experience. So if it happens again, mm -hmm. um, you say, oh, I been through that i've worked through that i think i know what i did last time and what worked and what didn't and how i could have approached this differently and some insights that you might have otherwise did not have at the moment the previous time and you and you bring that you can bring that it's like a simulation we talk mm -hmm. about writing as a sim reading as a simulation of experiences you know as a reader you sort of or as a listener you're sort of getting the simulation experiences of others and incorporating that and learning from that but i also think as a writer you're also sort of creating your own simulation 
um, that allows you to work through experiences moving forward. No, I, I definitely agree. And I love what you said there about running these iterations in your mind. And I had the thought of in science, the thought experiment and how you're just essentially running some something that intrigues you through the mind, through these processes over and over again. And maybe what scientists really should do is not just run the thought experiment, then put it down on paper as well. But I suppose maybe they both, you know, that happens as well. But yeah, I that just came to mind, though, the thought experiment. I mean, that's a kind of perennial thing in science. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I think it's fine. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, and I, at least some of the colleagues that I know who are doing, who do science, they do that too. Like they have their, like I have my, <laughs> my dog, my, my a rescue, one of my rescue dogs ate, ate it, unfortunately, um, recently, but like they also <laughs> have their, like their notebooks, you know, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and they're penning down ideas all the time. So I think there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of similarities between the two, um, the two projects of discovery. No, absolutely. I definitely think that writing things down sparks curiosity and helps to refine ideas. But anyway, while we're on the topic of like writing styles really quick, I I found the writing style, you know, besides the narrative style, I enjoyed the way that it was laid out the book, like Thank from you. chapter to chapter, almost as it was a series of short stories. And I'm guessing that you deliberately laid it out this way. And I'm curious as to why you did that for the reader. Yeah, so I I didn't want to only write about an ex and write about an experience. I wanted to take the reader into an experience. Like I want them to sort of feel a little bit of the of the destabilization that we experience when we go from patient to patient to patient to patient and the different types of stories that we encounter. Um Many times, the, most of the pieces are short because, as I said earlier, Jonathan, like I, I was writing basically out of just trying to process experiences, so I didn't have more information to work with. Like this is the information I had, um, and it usually had to do with these high-profile moments to me, like these really troubling, difficult to understand moments that I was trying to process. And uh, so I wanted to take take the reader through that, and so we organize it. And at some point, we actually initially I started initially writing the book to talk about process they were longer we, we experimented with longer longer chapters and long and and it lost its punch and it became sort of a little bit more academic-y it became more I was explaining a lot and as someone who comes from a world that's really rooted in narrative and telling and and trying to engage with people on an emotional level you know uh we didn't want to we didn't want to take that away we didn't want to lose you know what my editor you know bob Pryor said like he didn't want to lose that punch that that, that mm -hmm. sense of and so that's why you know everything it got sort of got shorter and we i want the reader to feel that like okay i'm going from one intense experience to another intense experience and and some of the pieces are what quote unquote chapters are a paragraph long. Some of them yep. are, you know, are much longer. Um, but that type of variety um, was very, very intentional. I thought it really made it fun. And I like in my mind, obviously, when you read a book, you have visual visualizations of kind of what's going on and what it might look like. And even for the really short chapters, it was you know, like just a, a, like, a, like a vignette, like a movie vignette playing in your mind. And I think you had like a short chap chapter on like catheters or something like that. And it was only like a paragraph and a half or two paragraphs long. And I'm like, okay, that was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, um, thank you. First of all, thank you for that. Because we were, you know, we were, I'm very lucky that um, that my editor and MIT Press let me write this type of book. And part of it comes from my world of, um of writing where you know we try to like we try to like say what like what can I bring that's new to this experience so you know and and I feel like what I had to what I wanted to push back against is I feel like when there's so many just fantastic wonderful books by physician writers and and and, and they're deeply rooted in sort of policy or they're they're very sort of more memoirish oriented, but 
I can't write, I can't write those types of books, you know, for, for many, for many different reasons that probably belong to a different, a different conversation. However, there was a certain type of book that I feel like I can write given my experience. And, and part of it, of the role of sort of, I think the arts in, in general is to sort of destabilize our expectations, you know, and that sort of comes through in the book a bit, like people, and I write about it, like you expect this to happen and this is actually really what's going on. Or I was mm -hmm. thinking this and this is how I was wrong. Um, and I ha and how do you destabilize an ex the reader's experience? And and how do you sort of share this sense of trying to struggle and make sense of an experience, not necessarily as an expert, but as someone who's maybe a little bit more expert at trying to understand in ways that he's not an expert <laughs> <laughs> and trying to, and trying to process those really challenging experiences. And, um, and so I'm glad like we were, I was crossing my fingers because, you know, hoping that the structure was going to connect with readers and uh, so it really warms my heart to hear what you have to, you had to say about that, and, and and I'm and I'm glad. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate the artistic liberties that you took with how you structured the book. I just I thought it was fun. It made it more fun that way, in Thank my opinion. You. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, speaking of your book, let's go ahead and uh, talk about and dig in a little bit more to uh, to you. the content. So you have a book, or excuse me, you have a chapter on not knowing, and that yeah. medicine is full of uncertainty. And I just kind of want to explore this topic a little bit with you because uncertainty sometimes makes people uncomfortable. And how do you deal with that in the emergency room? Yeah, it makes me uncomfortable. As I wrote yeah. in, the, in that particular chapter, I think it, it sort of makes me, the, the feeling I get from uncertainty is it ranges from like a mild allergic reaction to an outright panic attack, you know. Um, but what's interesting, Jonathan, is that in my training and in, in when I finished medical school and my emergency medicine residency, all those things I thought were going to scare me, I was pretty prepared for. Not like I wasn't terrified by it. And I, like whether someone came in a cardiac arrest or someone came in with difficulty breathing or a bad trauma. But what I wasn't prepared for were these moments when um, when I didn't when I was didn't quite know what I was dealing with, where the story was sort of going in a bunch of different places a thousand different directions or the, the patient wasn't really saying much or things weren't lining up or they had a bunch of complaints that were that weren't pointing to a diagnosis and what what do you do then like what do you do when there isn't the answer but you had to somehow come up with an answer and mm -hmm. response right and so you know, I think that's what you find in, um, and it and it actually required me to sort of borrow from my other life as a as a as a writer, which was like when you're stuck. You know, when I'm writing, when I'm stuck, you know, you start interrogating why you're stuck. <laughs> you know, first you recognize, first you push through, push through, push through, then you realize you, you're knocking your head against a wall, and and but there's this feeling that you know you're not there, so. The first thing I had to recognize when in the clinical space was like when I was getting that feeling, and and that feeling was similar to when I was having, when I had trouble moving forward in in my writing, and then it's like how do I borrow from? And I found myself borrowing from my writing skills, um, how to work with uncertainty, how to like recognize problems, and and realize that what I need to do first is to actually step backward and find out, God, how did I get here? Who was this person? Like ask the same stories I would ask of characters when I was writing fiction at that time, um, of, of these fascinating, profound, compelling characters who I'm trying to care for, who were sitting on a stretcher before me or laying on a stretcher before me. And there was so much overlap. And so my writing, actually at my career as a writer and my my evolution and my of craft as a writer grew with my evolution as and development as a writer. So how do I, how do I not just tolerate uncertainty, but actually how to use uncertainty, recognize it as an ally, as I write in the book to say, mm -hmm. okay, how do I change my course? How do I change? How do I, how do I move from what is the answer to saying, am I asking the right questions? Should I approaching this in a different way? Um, and so it's a different way of thinking through a particular moment. 
It's very interesting how you kind of bring writing into the concept of uncertainty in the uh, in the emergency room. Yeah, I find that I find that particularly fascinating. And also something that you uh, you mentioned there with, you know, just thinking in general, I should say, like, how do you how has your, I guess, working in the emergency room changed the way that I guess you think about the world in a sense, like has your has your th would you say that your thinking improved from years of working in the emergency room and learning how to triage and dealing with these uncertainties? Because I know like you have systems in place. You have these mental models that you've crafted through years of experience um, and you have your training, your years of training. I'm just, yeah, I'm just curious to hear like on, on, uh, from you exactly how this has, I guess, changed your, your thinking over the years and like how you kind of approach problems, let's say in the real world. Oh, it's, it's definitely changed, um, changed how I approach it. I think it, it's changed how I approach my, how I live my life. I also has changed how I, how I approach my, my writing and, and my, my more creative side. Um, one is, is the fact that, you know, you're, you just, you get, you get faced with stress all the time. Like there's this, Tons of people come in. Like I work in a very busy um, tertiary care trauma center, and so you're stressed all the time. Like you have, you're, you have, there's always more things you need to do than the time that you have available. Mm -hmm. So you got to get used to sort of identifying these feelings and working through these feelings and knowing how to process them and not let them get in the way. Because you know, early in my career, you can you can feel overwhelmed pretty quickly. Um, you also, you know, you learn to multitask <laughs> and when you, and when you multitask, you, you know, and on a, on a high level with, and, and with the stakes are high, right? So sometimes when people point out, God, this was missed and they isolate on a particular case, you know, they don't always focus on the fact that we were caring for 15 or 16 other patients at the same time. It doesn't necessarily excuse it. But it doesn't. But the context in which decisions are being made um, is oftentimes lost when, in hindsight, when people try to dissect a particular case um, under a, under a microscope, as if nothing else is going on, as if it was the only thing we were doing that day. Uh, and then we're facing uncertainty all the time. Like the uncertainty isn't the occasional thing. Like the the moments that when people come in with a particular problem that is just straightforward and say, oh, I have the X, Y, and Z and it equals this is very rare. Um, and more most likely, most of my practice is the practice of working through uncertainty. And, and that can manifest itself on many different levels. Sometimes the medicine piece is straightforward, but then you have someone who is dealing with mental illness or they have social issues or they can't care for themselves or, they're, or they have housing insecurity or they have substance use that interfere or they don't have the money to get the antibiotics or and on and on and on. And so you're always facing so many different challenges um, that are unexpected and that rear, that rear its head. And so how do you adapt to that? Uh, and um, without sort of losing your sense of hope. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think last is is the fact that most people go to work and, well, they used to go to work. Now we meet on, <laughs> now we meet on Zoom, um, but they work. And, and most people have the good fortune of just, uh, when they engage in their lives, they see people at their best. They see people when they're dressed and scrubbed um, and freshly washed and, uh, and, you know, for 30 years, you know, I, t I basically take care of people who are, if not at a worse moment in their lives, at a terrible moment of, of anxiety and fear and frustration and loss, um, and loss of control. And, uh, and, and I see the parts of, of communities, like, uh, I, there are people, I live in Rhode Island. I will, and there, there are, I know I have close friends who have lived in Providence all their lives and the Providence that I take care of is very different from the Providence that, that, that they live in. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a, and there's something that is both um, incredibly moving and, and profound about, about being a witness and having to, and having 
a chance to make an impact on um, people who who are on the, uh, who, who are on the margins of our communities and deserve better. Um, but uh, but it also tests you in ways that perhaps other people um, are not tested. And uh, and so the, it goes on and on. But yes, I go. I think working in the emergency department has uh, has. I would not be the person that I am today if I hadn't worked in emergency medicine. And that can be good or bad. Depending yeah, on right. <laughs> I, I yeah. think I, I think I've grown up. I, I'm still, you know, I've been at it for close to 30 years and I still consider myself a work in progress. Um, but I am, um, but I think I'm a more evolved human being than I was 30 years ago. I really loved what you said there too, about like the, the person to person contact because that was something that all of us kind of lost to a large degree during the pandemic. And right. yeah, there's definitely a need, I think, for most humans to be by other humans and not just through something like this, through right. Zoom or through the internet, but like the, that close kind of personal uh, connection. There's just really something, I would almost say like primal, like instinctual about that, like like a strong desire for that as a as a human. Right. So. I agree. But real quick, circling back to uncertainty, do you think that the average person in the emergency room, I think you opined about this briefly or you commented about this briefly uh, in your book, understands that whether it's a doctor or a scientist or somebody who is in charge uh, doesn't always have all the answers all the time, like that there's always going to be a degree of uncertainty or does this kind of make them uneasy and almost look at the you or whomever, uh, let's say a, a person in charge, uh, does it take away like their credibility uh, in your experience? That's a great question. And uh, so there are certain things that the public has expectations of, and they should you know, of physicians. So if you come into the emergency department and you're having crushing chest pain or shortness of breath and you have symptoms either overt or more subtle symptoms of a heart attack, I should know enough to get an EKG. You know, we should get, you know, we should know how to how to identify and treat that and not miss a heart attack, right? Yeah. There are certain things we need to know. Like we, they expect us to know and we're expected to, to be on point like and nail it you come in with an overwhelming infection we should be able to identify that you know there are certain things that we need to get right you know and and that all our training goes to being alert to the very to the many different ways of diseases can present and 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 to make sure we don't miss the, the really bad ones you know However, there's a lot of times people come in with, say, with chronic pain, um, or they come in with various different symptoms, which we don't have a diagnosis. They come in with headaches or back pain, whatever. And my own experience has been that, you know, they don't want to be told that they don't, that, oh, you have nothing. This is nothing. Like, if you're back yeah. pain, oh, this is nothing. Yeah. No, it's not nothing. Because you have, you've had enough, your discomfort and your distress was enough that you left what you were doing to come to the emergency department, wait for hours and be seen mm -hmm. by a stranger, this knucklehead or somebody else, um, better looking and younger and smarter. <laughs> um, and, and so it's not nothing, you know? So I feel like what we need to be doing and what people appreciate in my own experience is like recognize the experience that they're going through and to validate their stories, right? And say, listen, I know this has to be hard. You know, I know what you're going through. You, do, you have all this pain. I know you, they haven't found a reason for the, for your abdominal pain, or let's say we do a bunch of studies and we don't find a reason and, and the reason to explain it at that particular moment, but we might've ruled out the bad stuff um, and say, listen, this is what we've done. This is what we can do. We can control your pain. We can do some digging and try to find out what, what might be the cause and at least start your evaluation or start the workup. And then move on then like have a plan for you for moving forward you know mm -hmm. I, and i find that patients for the most part are so understanding they just want to they just don't want to be blown off yeah right and they don't want to just be talked down to uh they want to just have a conversation with another human being 
who's trying to understand their experience and doing their best to find an answer. And then if they can't, trying to give them some, some thoughts and some strategies and some help for moving forward. And, and of course, you know, there are, there's the occasional outlier, but, but from my general experience is that those, and there's some literature to support that those physicians who are more comfortable personally with uncertainty are more likely to discuss uncertainty with their patients and like shared decision-making. Well, I'm happy to hear that because I know that uncertainty can, at least from my experience, and you know, this may not reflect uh, entirely what's uh, what what's in the literature, but I, and even from my own personal experience, I know that it can, can create une uneasiness, at least before I, I, I suppose, before I came more of a trained scientist and learned that we have to basically speak in probabilities because we really don't know everything with absolute right. certainty at all times. And we don't right. have the answers for everything, which is why we do science and all of that. Uh, but I, I really enjoy what you, what you said there too, about when patients are confronted with uncertainty, as long as you connect with them and kind of give them some sort of game plan, it really helps them to feel better that they don't want to be blown off. And I know that this is kind of a common theme that you talk about throughout your entire book. And there's another chapter there where you mentioned that like a lot of the patients kind of, they just come in and they suffer from the need of or want of warmth, food, shelter, security, and that sense of connection and how important that is that just interacting with another human who for, you know, whatever time that they're there makes them feel like they're cared about. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, uh, Exactly. I, I agree. I think that was so well said. And uh, and also when we talk about, you know, the podcast critical thinking is <laughs> that, you know, I, I also find that patients just welcome us thinking out loud about their situation. This is what I'm thinking. You know, this is, I don't, what are your concerns? Often people will come in and say, listen, you know, they don't necessarily want an answer or, or need an answer, but they just, they might say, listen, I'm, I have this chest pain and I'm worried about a heart attack or like well, that's, that's where you finally get out of them. Like when you chat with them, you find out that their father had a heart attack or their friend just had a heart attack and they have this twinge that's, and you're unlikely to be a heart attack, but they just want to be sort of, they come in for reassurance yeah. that it's, it's not something, but yet, but that just speaks to like, just trying to understand, listen, what are your concerns? What are you, what are you worried? What are you worried about? And this is how I'm thinking through it. And what do you think? Like anything you need to add? And and I feel like we're doing better at that. And I, I know, like in in my res the residency that I that I'm a part of and I'm faculty at, you know, we're having you know so many of, of you know people I work with, physicians and mid levels, PAs, and our residents or trainees are so are getting so much better at that. Um, and 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 I. And, it, and part of it is out of necessity because we don't always have the answer, you know? So, but how do we somehow make it a meaningful experience and 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 try to have these conversations with patients and be their advocate um, as much as we can when we don't, when we don't know. And, um, and I think part of the problem, John, and like, again, like this comes from, you know, I don't know why it's like this, but in medicine, you know, uncertainty oftentimes carries this, this kind of this negative connotation, right? Like you don't know, mm -hmm. like we're supposed to know, yep. you know? And so it's hard to, to, to sort of to extricate the uncertainty from this negative connotation. And, and so it changes reframing of uncertainty as, okay, yes, there are, you know, if you don't, if you, if you don't know what you're supposed to know, if you're incompetent, like we're not talking about that. Like if, if, if you don't have a solid knowledge base, like that's a totally different issue. That's not saying, Hey, I'm supposed to be uncertain. No, <laughs> you have to have a certain level of professional knowledge, however, and, and meet those standards. However, a lot of the challenges that we face don't fit into neat boxes. Right? So how do you then have, can you think more creatively? Use, mm -hmm. think more imaginatively. Be more adaptive, so you're able to sort of take that knowledge and also couple that with the experience of trying to understand 
what another human is going through. You know, another thing too, is that, you know, even if, if uh, you're one of the individuals where a doctor has to come to you and say, you know, we've done all these diagnostics on you and it's all coming back normal, but you're like, well, I don't feel well. And then you come to me while saying, well, everything looks okay. You're not dying right now, because that's really what kind of happens, at least in your setting. You really want to make sure the person's stable. So you kind of roll all the bad stuff out. And then when you come back to an individual with the, well, I don't know what's wrong with you. We've done all these tests. Everything looks okay for now. I think that it's really important for the person to kind of understand in that moment, while they don't have a definitive answer, what's going on, when, going on with them, they did all of these tests and they came back that you're okay. So you're, you're going to be able to walk out of here and then let's put together a game plan. Um, like you had mentioned earlier on the back end of it. Cause I, I know it can be for me, I got sick in college and I had to go see a bunch of different doctors and it kept coming back that there was nothing wrong with me. And that can be a really frustrating journey for a yeah. lot of patients. And like, right. and they're like, well, these doctors don't care about me. Nobody knows what's going on. They don't know what they're doing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, maybe some doctors, you know, maybe are a bit more callous than others, but I think in general, the healthcare system is designed to produce answers, to produce results. And to help, to help the individual get better. A test that comes back negative saying that there's nothing wrong with you is still a step forward. And exactly. I think it's important for people to understand that. Yeah, and I, and that's and that's exactly right. And we we frame that and say, listen, we might not be able to tell you what you have, but we can do a decent job depending on what the complaint is of saying what you don't have. Yeah. You know, some of the some of the bad things that we that we might be concerned about. Let's see if we can take those off the table or within reasonable certainty take them off the table. And in the meantime, make you comfortable, right? Because oftentimes we're so framed, we're so focused on finding the answer. It's like we don't address the person's distress or suffering. And they're there for hours and they go, Oh, can I get something for the pain? Oh, yeah, you're in pain. Yeah. Um and it's amazing how under more understanding people are when you actually make them more comfortable uh and so it's, there's a lot of things that go into this and and something you you said john that was, that was so interesting about you know not having an answer and then somehow depending upon the situation making people might think that the doctor doesn't care and that's so fascinating right because the two don't necessarily like you can say that you don't have an answer and and still care yeah <laughs> in fact the caring comes through the the effort of trying to come up with an answer um and so and i and i and i and i and the impression i get from many of our patients is that sometimes they they get that feeling they, it was framed in a way that they just when you get down to their um their uneasiness it was with a previous experience and hopefully it's not mine but maybe sometimes is the fact that they got the impression that the doctor didn't care that's usually it. Not the fact yeah. they didn't have the answer. It's the fact that they got the impression that the doctor didn't care. Either they blew them off or they didn't let them speak long enough. They weren't going to listen to their problems. Or something we haven't talked about, instead of welcoming and embracing uncertainty and acknowledging it, just giving them a diagnosis that they know is not the right diagnosis or doesn't feel like it doesn't. They think people do their research on Dr. Google or whatever that I'm not saying that's the place to go, um, but people go, but people go there. Yep. yep. Um, but whatever reason they say, listen, I don't think it's it. He just gave me this diagnosis, you know? And the problem is that when people do get diagnoses, you know, and it's maybe, and it's not the thing, but they try to do it to make patients happy. Like someone with a headache and they just give someone a migraine diagnosis. It stops us from looking. Because we say, oh, you have this person with a headache. They have a migraine. And they say, who diagnosed a migraine? Oh, some, you know, was it a neurologist? Was it someone with more expertise? And it might, sometimes, sometimes it's not. And they're going, why did they say that? Because I don't know why they said that. Sometimes it's, it's spoken with a lot of sort of, like, there's a lot of logic there. And you read there, you might read a note and you go, oh, I see why they say that. And sometimes it is, it's because they don't want, they're not uncomfortable with, they're not comfortable with uncertainty. So they're giving a diagnosis. Yeah. And then that stops the search, you know, or limits the search unless you really care to look back. I had someone who was labeled with a migraine who ended up having a, a brain tumor. Um, and so um, 
you know, you have to, you have to sort of be open. Sometimes there's a, there's a lot of good that comes from maintaining openness in our thinking, right? Yeah. And it's okay to say, I don't know. I think that there's such a stigma in our society about, about being uncertain or saying that I don't know at this moment in time. I know uh, that, that that we need to fill that void immediately. Otherwise, we're going to be labeled as incompetent or look foolish or, you know, or something of that uh, nature, which is ridiculous. And, and I don't know doesn't necessarily mean I don't care. Yes. Right. I mean, you can say I don't know. And, and that uncertainty is coupled with um, a great amount of compassion and diligence. And and it's also associated, hopefully it's associated with what you do know. Like, this is what we do know. Um, you know, you don't have, like you have belly pain. We know you, you know, we did a CAT scan. We, you don't have appendicitis. You're, you don't have an infection that we're seeing or we don't, you know, uh, we, your gallbladder is fine, whatever. And so we know this is what we do know. But this mm-hmm. is maybe the steps that you need to take or the next test set of tests that you need. But we started the the workup or the workup, we moved the workup forward. And I and I feel like that might be what we need to be doing, Don, right? Is just sort of how do we when we don't know, how do we both validate a patient's experience or someone's experience and recognize the challenges that they're going through and then just move things along. Like you maybe we might not have certainty, but maybe we remove certain levels of uncertainty. Yes. I mean, yeah, and that's just the scientific process. I mean, there right. is no right. absolute proof in science. We can't say th- anything with one hundred percent certainty. What we do is we are less wrong. We take incremental steps towards being less wrong about the situation. <laughs> right. Yeah, or removing uncertainty is another way of saying that. And right. that, that's just how it goes. Um, that's just how it goes. But I don't know if the average person kind of understands that. And they really don't like, um, they don't like the uncertainty. But I suppose it depends how you frame it, like we talked about earlier. I mean, if you give them a game plan saying, hey, for right now, we're not quite sure. We ruled out all of the really bad things. Here's a, here's a game plan moving forward for you. I also, and, I, and I feel like it begins, again, on that, on that, platform of story like trying to understand like through story we understand a patient's experience we try to as best we can and then when we talk to them when we talk to patients and we or we have a conversation with patients and their families we're usually sharing stories like we say listen this is what we know this is what we don't know and you're telling a story um and maybe this is what patients who have had these situations before this might be the next steps is what might be what your doctor might need might be interested in doing or and they'll tell us their stories well i don't you know i you know my doctor has talked about that and then you're right i mean he said that and i wasn't comfortable doing that test but now i think i need to do that test um but they'll come back with other stories <laughs> well yeah. my aunt had this or whatever and this is what happened to her and that was and so really like that that is i think that's where not just where information is exchanged and where insight into one another can be found but i also think that stories are the platform in which and where trust is built and i feel that patients will accept getting back to your original question i think patients will accept their uncertain uncertainty if they trust you yeah yeah i really like what you said there about stories or narratives that that's pe- kind of how people talk. That's and then they use uh, anecdotes. So people are prone to using anecdotes or stories or pulling right. from experience. Uh, you talk a little bit about availability bias and other types of biases in medicine. But yeah, people kind of grasp of what they know and then they communicate and talk in stories, um, which is uh, which is really interesting. I mean, it can lead to all different types of errors in thinking. But Absolutely. yeah, that's just but that's just what appeals to people. It's just kind of how people are wired, and until they're trained differently. Um, which would have to start pretty young, I would guess. Um, But that's just kind of how we, I would guess, evolved. And then it just, over time, I mean, because if you think about it, a long time ago, we didn't have the scientific method. So what did we do? I mean, if we wanted to communicate with people, we would pull things immediately from our environment and tell the person sitting next to us. How would we pass them down from one generation to the next? We create stories. So yeah, these things come to us very naturally and many things in science, medicine are unnatural in the sense that we 
kind of have to fight a little bit cognitively to to get over these hurdles to to start thinking uh, in this manner. I also uh, want to, you know, you said something that was so interesting about the fact that, you know, stories are not always, you know, there's a there's a, another there's a darker element to stories yeah. as well that we know <laughs> that we haven't that we haven't really talked about and and it's true like because of the power of stories like it can it can beguile us like we can you know we can be convinced of a story much much um uh in a, in a, a much more engaging and uh way than sometimes than by by the facts you know we will believe like we will question statistical methods right as scientists you know we'll 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 read studies and we'll we'll study the methods and and discuss the 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 different types of processing and statistical methods using used to um just to validate and legitimate and legitimize the data um and we say this is like a legitimate or statistically statistically significant outcome um or a valid study but we don't necessarily interrogate stories in that same way we believe a story yeah. because we believe a story <laughs> because we yeah. believe a story yeah. in our brains <laughs> and, and, I, and as i said in the and a couple of times in the book is like you know we we will um you know our brains are hardwired for story you know um you know many people have written about that and like and we don't necessarily like we'll just take the information that's available and create a story and we oftentimes don't necessarily recognize or acknowledge the information that we don't have yeah. um when we when we create and construct not just stories in our own mind, but we're actually just constructing knowledge too, yeah. um, in a way. And so we have to be sort of being open and being sensitive to the way narratives operate is also being open and sensitive to the way that narratives can beguile us and to be open and to be and to be aware of that as much as we can. It's hard. No, I, yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Definitely have to be open to it, even if the story is more readily assimilated than the actual facts. Exactly. But anyway, based off of all of your experience, how are you advocating for changes in medicine with like the power of connection, creativity? How do you want to improve medicine? How are you hoping to do that? Because you talk a little bit about that in your book, and I know you're. Yeah, I, I, it's really hard, you know, because I mean, medicine is is prides itself on being evidence based, you know, and yeah. very science using as it should be, right? <laughs> just, I want I want to get that out there, and it, you know, we're dealing with people's lives, and um, and we should be making decisions based on very sound, um, sound evidence and and uh, and research that is built on the experiences of like thousands, if not tens of thousands, of hundreds of thousands of. of of participants however again in medicine too we also take care of one patient at a time and so you know we have to be also bring other tools to um to the clinical encounter and and i, and I feel like we need to be thinking more about how we think mm -hmm. and you know i feel like art space thinking like artists and somewhat in some way scientists as well like will document their thinking process right i mean when you create a work of art when i create a story or create an essay or it's like the final product like what that that's not the that's that's not the intention the intention is it's this final thing is the result of my thinking process of me that's the final physical manifestation of my mind at work right of thinking through something and so i feel like we need to focus not just on outcomes in medicine which is pretty important but but art space questions on like that have to do with process how do we get clinicians to think about how they think why they're thinking a certain way and and they realize that there are certain elements of what we do which involves and requires creativity because they don't they don't fit a certain script. Like they don't follow an algorithm. They'll, they'll, you'll need to apply the science, they apply the research to this particular situation, which is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm 30 years of doing this. And, you know, my last two overnight shifts where I just came off of, I've seen things I've never seen before. You know, so like, so we need adaptability. The pandemic has taught, if it has taught us anything is the fact that we got to be adaptable right? We're always going to be, we got to be prepared. We got to be prepared to be, to be for the uns for uncertainty. And I yeah. think the people who are most skilled in 
learning how to use uncertainty and how to become and thinking through problems, I think our our artists and designers and I think the humanities people are, and people who are thinking about critical thinking, people like yourself. Um, so I think the news I've written in the past about, I feel like the, the new interdisciplinary team in in medicine and healthcare has to include, you know, has to include, you know, clinicians of all stripes and, you know, all the those usual suspects, but also writers and designers and artists and to help inform that you know bring those skills into normal and hopefully normalize um uncertainty and and how we and how we work through challenging situations Mm -hmm. yeah i can't think of any sort of life situation that wouldn't benefit for some from learning how to be a more creative problem solver uh creativity is such an integral component of solving problems and confronting situations that are novel that you've never come across before and then being able to think quickly and pulling from all of your life experiences using lateral thinking using critical thinking all of these other mental models that you developed over the years yeah it's yeah i couldn't agree more yeah i think it's i think it's wonderful (laughs) yeah and and divert and like the fact that we're so reductive in medicine and that you know what we're talking about is initially being recognized in when we need to be divergent and and what that means like not just as a term and as an idea but how in practical terms we get to that um and uh, i mean those were all and those are all experiences that that like what we're talking about you can write about it you can talk about it but actually people have to experience it right like you have to play with it yeah and like you have to get your you have to get dirty with it and then see where you see how you're responding to it and and the how and how your behavior and how you're thinking perhaps differs from your idea about how you should be behaving and how you should be thinking no absolutely couldn't agree more anyway jay it's been a wonderful conversation i just want to thank you uh so much for stopping by and where can people connect with you i mean do you have a website do you have social media and then yeah, they can uh, yeah i am uh, sorry to interrupt. I am no, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, on uh, www.jbaruch.com, J-A-Y-B-A-R-U-C-H. I have a website and then you can actually contact me through the website. Um, I'm also, I'm, I'm really poor on social media, but I'm, uh, but I'm not, <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm struggling, but I'm, I'm there. I'm on Twitter and it's, um, uh, jbaruch, uh, MD at jbaruch, uh, at jbaruch, MD. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. And uh, and for people, if they want to find my book, and I hope I hope they do. It would be it would be a great honor for me if your listeners um, would take a look at my book. Uh, I you know it should be in sort of local independent bookstores, um, either in your community or online, and it's also available at certain behemoths <laughs> that we will <laughs> that we will not name, but it's there as well. Okay. And um, and so, uh, but it'd be great if people can support their local their local outlets. That would be great too. All right, perfect. Uh, anyway, for those of you who are stopping by, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a wonderful conversation. I hope that you enjoyed it too. Uh, please share, hit that like button, and stay tuned for more great content coming your way. Take care. Thank you.